Ching, 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 ching. I actually love the way that sounds, by the way. pastor a podcast about life and set apart ministry each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small town parish ministry and in phd work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can so ethan ethan how you doing how was your week this week? <laughs> uh it was fun well kind of uh, it's, it's complicated. So, so last week when we recorded, we recorded, um, really after only one class of my PhD, of my new PhD life. Mm-hmm. And, and I have had all of the rest of my classes since then. And so 90 seconds, it'll probably be more than 90 seconds. I have a class on theologies of culture and I have a class on methods and research of religious studies. And I have a class on Karl Barth that I all took in between the last time we recorded and now. And it was really fun. I, uh, my advisor teaches the class on Karl Barth. Uh, and so he, uh, I feel like, um, uh, protects me like a mother hen a little bit. <laughs> Fair, fair. I only I only say that because of how my second political theology class went, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but uh, my theology as a culture class is taught by a gentleman named Dr. Larry Bouchard, and I had not met him. Like I've visited UVA before, and I've met a, a number of professors, but I didn't get to meet him. And um, so this is my first time ever interacting with him. Ever was on Zoom was was last last Wednesday. Uh, afternoon and and I've heard good things like I've heard from different people like oh yeah Larry he's really great and 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 it's going to be awesome and uh, and so I come on and Larry Bouchard is quite simply the sweetest human being on the planet oh he, he he is uh 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 possibly I don't know this for sure possibly in his 70s um he's he's an older guy he is, he's, he's quite simply the sweetest and, and, and nicest older man I've ever met. Um, very smart. He's a professor. So, but, but he's, he's like, he's kind of one of those like, uh, wow, you're so smart, you know, and so sweet kind of a people. And, and he is, um, I don't know exactly what's going on, but he is uh, close to like a, 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 a Stephen Hawking's style physical disability, hmm. um, which I did not expect. I did not know this about, about him at all. Um, no, nobody brought it up, which, which makes sense. The only thing that was brought up that I knew what, that going in was that sometimes it's hard to understand him, but after a while you'll figure it out. I was like, oh, okay. 
and and he so he can talk still. Uh, it's 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 uh, you know he's not like totally um, unable to do that, but but very but physically you know he's he's you know he just he, he needs some some extra help, and uh, and it was wonderful. Man, he he is he is cool. He's he's such an interesting mixture of um, expertise. Like he has. He, he's a trained theologian, but but the primarily the classes he teaches are in the intersection of literature and religion. And so he teaches all of these classes on like Walt Whitman oh, really? and like and like uh, uh, um, tragedy in in plays like like he one of his areas is is on is called uh tragic theology and tragic like like tragic plays and tragic theology and so he like right wrote this book about you know kind of deep diving into the the genre of tragedy in you know greek plays and 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 beyond and then just kind of draws them into conversation with theologies of the tragic and stuff like that uh and and so like in this theologies of culture class you have uh, obviously the, a pro- a predominantly religious studies majors, but then you have these like folks who are like, hi, I'm here because I took Larry's class or I'm in the English department and like Larry's like the coolest. And so I was like, yeah, let's take a, cl- a class with Larry. Hi, I'm a PhD student in ancient literature and I took a class with Larry when I was an undergraduate, you know, and, and it just stuck with me. And so I'm, I'm here to learn about theology for the first time. Like, like it's, and, and he's like, Oh, great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and it was cool. Like, like, wow, what a cool, what a cool guy. Like just a really cool guy. Um, and so, and he, you know, he's like a big Paul Tillich fan, kind of randomly. He's like, oh, I just love Paul Tillich. And yeah. everybody's like, great, Larry. <laughs> and Larry's like, it <laughs> is great. <laughs> it is great. That's why we're all reading Paul Tillich. And we are. <laughs> we're reading, <laughs> we're reading uh, Theologies of Culture by Paul Tillich. <laughs> so, well, I guess that's um, unavoidable given the topic. But... Given the topic, yeah. We're not quite there yet. But like, you know, it's. Uh, in his class, it's the first time I've read. I don't know if I mentioned this, um, and then I'll get off and I'll talk about other things. But uh, um, his class, uh, so far, is the first time I've ever read a a uh, a Muslim uh, like intellectual. Oh, really? Like, like is Islam is a pretty decent, and I and I fully and freely admit this. Like Islam, there there's a quite a large blind spot in my religion and theological education when it comes to Islam. The, my, I, I was a sociology and religion double major in undergrad, and, and our religious studies department had no, not even an adjunct teacher in Islam, wow. um, which was a giant oversight. And, and I participated in my senior year in like a, like a department um, consultation, like they brought in some outside guy to talk to the faculty and students in the department and we were like yeah i mean not a single one of us has had a class on islam wow and and the the consultant was like looking at us like and almost started laughing like i mean what do you really mean like you mean that you just don't like the islam professor 
and and we're like we're like no <laughs> no we've never had one and he was like are you kidding me like are you sure and i'm like i'm gonna graduate having taken no class that has talked about islam and and he's like are you serious like are you for are you for real i'm like yeah and so i have a pretty i say all that to say like i have a pretty wide blind spot uh and so i we read um and we will continue to read we only read a chapter so far in this uh but we read a really fascinating like it was easily my favorite text so far in that class book on secularity by a Muslim scholar. Mm. And, and uh, man, I just, I just really appreciated that. Yeah. Um, I think it's called the sources of the secular. I, I'll have to look it up again, but, but just, just his insight on, um, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a, a collection of, thinkers in Christian in the Christian theology world um, that are, that are really you know critical and and of and suspicious of secularity which I like I, I don't hate the argument like I think that it's often cast in really triumphalistic terms and that's unhelpful but but I think there's something to it when we say secularity is not what it says it is you know like when when secularity says that oh we are merely the neutral peaceful ground you know like mm-hmm. like of course not like of course it's not true in secularity we have shed all theological precepts incorrect you know that's that's not what secularity is like i think that's helpful uh but there's a number of christian thinkers who then say that's why we should bring back the pope as the ruler of the world <laughs> and everybody's like <laughs> no <laughs> Also not helpful. (laughs) No, 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 no. Uh, Well, what's really interesting is to read that critique through the lens of a Muslim American, Mm -hmm. you know, and to say, oh, secularity is definitely not what it says it is. (laughs) And I know that because I'm Muslim in the United States, like, like, you know, where, where even, even the, the, the person who has, who has shed, who, who believes that, she, that he or she has shed Christianity the most and, and for all intents and purposes has, is still grounded in a kind of anti-Islam, you know, um, uh, uh, fear. Actually, yeah. this guy was really, um, said something really interesting where he was like, he he actually doesn't believe that that um, uh, kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric and and sort of anti-Muslim you know ways of thinking are really all that rooted in Christianity. He he's kind of like historically and and continuously to now, the majority of the world is made up of Muslim and Christian communities living in harmony, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like, like that's the overwhelming majority of the world. Cause they're the two, you know, in terms of non far Eastern religions, the two largest religious faiths that are still growing exponentially all over the world. And, and you see that everywhere you see Muslim and Christian communities thriving together everywhere, you know, with, with, with very little uh, um, conflict. The, the primary place where you see conflict is is amongst secular societies against Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and which I found, which I found fascinating. He's like, what, what is the United States hatred of Iran, of Iran, but a, a secular country hating a theocracy? You know, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, have Christians been co-opted? Sure. But, <laughs> but, but is Christian, is, is it, is it the fault of Christianity? Is this, this guy, this guy kind of brings forward and says, oh, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating. Really, yeah. really cool class. That, that was cool. If you ever um, need other like sources, I took um, modern Islamic civilizations with Omid Safi when I was at Carolina, and I have a I still have my notes from that class because it was such a great class. So I have a I have a list of books that should be in my bookshelf that never got there. But if you're ever just like searching, I got some lists. Awesome, yeah. I, I will I will let you know. I, I'll probably end up taking a class on Islam while I'm here. Yeah, I feel um, like you gotta. Because I really, you're right. I think I just, I, I just have to. You know, that's what, what a, what a blind spot. And like, it was a blind spot I never really felt. Like I knew, like I knew about, like it was one that I knew about. Like, and so when, when I, 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 I did my very best to never like engage very deeply in conversations about Islam because I knew I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And so like, and so like people were like, well, Islam says this. And then they look at me, I'll be like, I don't fucking know what Islam says. Like, like, I know, I know, right. uh, you know, I can't, I can't differentiate. I'm not confident enough to differentiate between American propaganda and what Islam believes, you know, and right. So, like, you know, I'm the not, five pillars and that's what you got. Yeah. And so like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna move too, too deeply in that circle. Um, but it was really good. What a cool, and, and he was a really great writer too. Like, like he was really an engaging read. Nice. And, and I really liked that. Foundations of the Secular. That's the name of mm. it. Or Formation of the Secular. Formation of the Secular by Talal Asad. All right. Um, my, my class on religious method, research, methods and research in religious studies is fine. I, I, I already knew it was going to be. I was like, I was like oh, this is going to be boring, but we'll get through it. Uh, we'll get through it. It's a ton of reading. And then Karl Barth class was also uh, fun. We, we spent time really analyzing the, uh, the Jesus and social justice, you know, mm. the, the now see here letter and, and stuff. It was fun. And we, we talked about other things and, and, and the direction of the class and where that's going. And, uh, you know, he's like, I guarantee you that so many of you will find Bart absolutely compelling for the first several weeks. Like he's like, cause he's like, cause Bart is Bart's like so compelling. And, and, and he's, and, and when you actually read him, you're like, you know, you discover how cosmopolitan he is and how, and how he's not just some Calvin Stan. Like he doesn't just sit around and go, Calvin's right hundred percent of the time. And my and all I'm doing is just repeating Calvin in German now and in and in funny twentieth century ways. He's like Dr. Jones is like, that's just like absolutely not what he's doing. Like he's he's drawing he's drawing on all kinds of things to to like talk about all kinds of things. And he's like, that is until we get to Bart on sex and gender, because he's uh Bart on sex and gender is is roughly uh you know uh, the equivalent of a of a German village in the 15th century. <laughs> like, like suddenly we find ourselves in like like what the hell's going on? 
like, what are you talking about, Bart? And he goes, we'll get there, and everybody will be like, well, this is hot garbage uh, all the way through. <laughs> did, you, did you know, quick thing, and then, and then we'll get to stuff that's bothered me. Did you know that um, uh, the representative of Methodism herself, Georgia Harkness, the, the woman who has my heart, even though I disagree with everything she's ever written. <laughs> uh, Georgia Hartness, the Methodist theologian. Do you know that in the 30s, Georgia Hartness once publicly challenged Karl Barth on his beliefs on women, sex, and gender? Really? Yeah. How'd it like, go? So, so she was at, she, you know, is, is by the 30s. So, so listeners, Georgia Hartness is a Methodist is a lady. She's a Methodist theologian. Uh, she she was actually trained as a philosophical theologian. Like she's considered pretty darn smart, and really was very smart. And then her career, kind of in the forties and fifties, up until her death, transformed into more of a practical theologian, where she wrote uh, texts for lay folks and different things like that. But her early career was like really philosophical, and. Uh, um, and she was a lesbian and all this great stuff. But anyway. <gasps> I didn't yeah. know she was a lesbian. Oh, she was a lesbian. Um, oh, yeah. She lived with the, she like had like a committed relationship with a woman all the way up to her death by starting around like the 40s. This is um, the best day. Georgia Hartness is cool. I really do like Georgia Hartness. She's, she's one of those people that I really do legitimately like, <laughs> even though, even though she's a Boston personalist and it's all kind of silly. Like, mm-hmm. like she's, she's really great. But so Georgia Hartness in the 30s is uh, a fully trained theologian. She got her, her PhD at Boston and, and studied with major North American Christian philosophers and theologians. And she's in Germany uh, attending, a, or not in Germany. She's somewhere. She's not in Germany in the 30s. That would be nuts. But she's, <laughs> she's somewhere <laughs> in the 30s attending a lecture that Karl Barth is giving on um, – uh, his interpretation of, uh, uh, of of Genesis, you know, in in relation to the fall and 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 the relationships between men and women, uh, and and Georgia Hartness is is just not letting up, like like it's like any questions, and Georgia Hartness is like, yeah, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and and is just just I don't have like the details of the exchange, but like will just not let up on Bart, you know, on the genius, like, like on his, on his conclusions about women and, and all this stuff. She, you know, she challenges the nature of his biblical exegesis. She challenges his metaphysics. She challenges his, his, his entire, her, you know, hermeneutic, like, like, and just, just goes for it. And, and Bart is like trying to keep his cool, but he's a misogynist. <laughs> so like he, <laughs> And so it's it's a struggle, and and finally it ends, and and you're you're gonna love this. Are you ready for this? I'm so it ready. It ends, and uh, and and ever since then, like so, like it happened immediately after, and then like at, at other times throughout throughout Bart's career, uh, whenever Georgia Harkness is brought up to Bart, like whenever that moment is brought up. Uh, uh, Bart interrupts people and says, uh, "Say no more about that woman." <laughs> yes, uh, yes. 
I do love that. I long to be that woman in some just terrible misogynistic theologian's brain all of the time. Oh, say no more about that woman. Like, isn't that incredible? And it's and it's and it's one of our own, you know. (laughs) Right, right. That's what makes it feel even better. (laughs) She's playing for the home team. Thanks, Georgia. Like, (laughs) thank, thank you, Doctor Harkness. You know, you did it. So that's a great story. Um, So anyway. Yesterday, I had my second political theology class. We talked about that. That was the class we talked about at length last week and, and some of this great stuff. And, and I um, had to do a reading. I had to do two readings for that class yesterday. One was uh, from a political thinker that I'd never heard of named Benjamin Constant. Don't know him. Uh, yep. Didn't know him either. And, and another one was a guy you might have heard about. His name is Immanuel Kant. <laughs> um, and uh, the Kant reading uh, was one of his last writings, uh, which was a, a, a writing on the establishment of peace and what it might mean for um, people's you know, nations to, to, be, to create peace and lasting peace. And Benjamin Constant's reading was on um, uh, uh, the freedom of modern people versus the freedom of ancient peoples and, and what that might mean as things have developed for establishing society and, and, and just politics. And then we had to write like a, like a little 500-word summary and analysis of it. it it's, the, the syllabus says summary – Summary with some pointed questions, but what I think Dr. Matthews actually wants is an analysis. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, we arrive, we show up. He's like, okay, um, well, we'll just open it up. Let's talk about the Kant reading first. Um, we'll open it up. Anybody uh, uh, have any uh, opening comments? And I was like, I'll go first. Cause I try to get it out of the way in PhD world. Like I try to just kind of lay out what I think or, or my, my opening thought or question. And then I kind of, then I kind of go, okay, I'm done for a while. Um, and so I say something like, you know, I really, I'm not really all that familiar with Kant, not really. Um, but I really found this reading to be really engaging. And I did think perpetual peace was engaging. Um, I thought, I thought I really followed the argument well. And I was really struck by this component of his argument. All right, thanks, Ethan. Uh, Next. And as the conversation continued, it became painfully clear that I in no way understood the Immanuel Kant reading. Oh, no. Uh, Wrong. Wrong every step of the way. And the worst part is, is that Dr. Matthews knows I was wrong because he read my summary. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. Yep, and I'm like, I didn't understand this at all. I didn't feel good. And and so, like, I was kind of, yeah, I'm taking notes and and I'm asking different questions and and, and offering different different things based based on what I, you know, what I was pretty sure was true. This is after knowing I didn't understand it. And, and so it wasn't like I talked a ton. I talked like two more times, but I like, that it was to gain clarity and stuff like that. It was fine. Mm-hmm. It, it, 
it was worse than it, I'm sure it just felt worse than it really was. Um, it wasn't like after, after all of that laid out that Dr. Matthews was like, well, you're all, you're done. And then deleted me like, like that's not what happened. Uh, but like, then I also didn't really understand like the nuances of the constant reading either. Like, like it was very, I had, I, I had read them, you know, and, and, uh, wrote a summary on it. It wasn't like I came in not having done the reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just didn't understand the reading. And so part of that is, you know, part of that is I am not familiar with, you know, late 18th, early 19th century um, political thought. <laughs> part of that's right. it. Like part of that is that. Uh, the other part is, is that I haven't really exercised that part of my brain in a while. Not really, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I was, I was just really disappointed. Like, and I felt stupid. Like I felt dumb. Um, I emailed Rick Elgendi and I was like, hi, I'm, I'm taking a break during Chuck Matthews political theology class. And I didn't understand Kant like at all <laughs> and i and i publicly ex- exposed myself as somebody who didn't understand the reading <laughs> i'm sure Elgendi just like cringed and and laughed along with you like he did he did he, he responded back with a really a very nice email i have to respond back to him but he was like that's all right man i've said such stupid shit in, in graduate school and they still let me graduate so yeah you know, it's okay. And, and I'm sure it is. That's the thing. Like, but it was, it's just, it just didn't make me feel good. And, and, and so I, I was very grumpy after class and started reading next week's reading right away. And, and I'm taking all kinds of notes over it. Like I'm, I'm really going deep now. Like, cause I, I was like, I want to get this right. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be an idiot and, and I think I'll be okay. We'll, we'll see. But like I'm doing it, it's it's a Max Weber reading, and I'm more familiar with Weber because I was a social major, and mm-hmm. and yeah. so I'm I'm doing that, and, and and I think it'll be good. I but I but I did I I felt I just felt dumb, and everybody else really seemed to understand it. This <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't help. Can I can I share a story that is of a similar caliber to make you feel better? Please. So I, when I was at Edinburgh, we were reading Christ the Key because Catherine Tanner was coming for the Gifford lectures and the guy reading the group was, uh, Catherine Tanner was a supervisor uh, for his PhD work. And so he, he had read the book before, knew it inside and out. And every time I opened my mouth in that group, even though I'd, I'd done the reading, um, just like everything that came out of me was like, this is so revelatory. Cause like Catherine Tanner is not an evangelical. Catherine Tanner is not a Methodist. She, she is thinking in a, in a different way than any theology I'd read before. Right. And I was in my like second semester <laughs> of graduate school work. And so there were many moments in that reading group where I would just say something and people would like blink at me and then go on. So I knew that hmm. I know that feeling really well, at least I wasn't getting graded on it. It was, I, I volunteered for this. Uh, but then uh, they had a, a divinity school wide um, like panel discussion with Catherine Tanner before the Gifford lectures started. And they had people from the reading group like sitting up there as a part of the panel. 
And they picked um, me and my friend Melanie because I don't know, we were female. Like, I don't know. I'm not really sure why we got suckered into it. Or maybe we were just like the dumbest, not the dumbest, but like the people who were most willing to be embarrassed because I sat next to Catherine Tanner and Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I'm not really big into reading theology, but I love Christ the key. I've just never thought about things like this before. And she blinked at me (laughs) and the panel thankfully started. Um, And then I asked whatever my question was. I don't even know. It was not helpful. It didn't. It was, it was asinine. I am sure because just crickets around literally every single one of my peers at the divinity school and Catherine Tanner and David Ferguson, who is the president of the college, um, like is sitting on the other side and like picks up the question is like, what an interesting thread we can pull upon and then makes it into something that's good. And they go from there. But like, it was live streamed. It was in front of all sorts of people, like heavy academic people. And I just looked the fool. But the worst part of it is that I did not realize how foolish it was until I had completed my degree and was like, oh, I knew nothing. I knew nothing and everyone (laughs) saw it. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yeah. You, there, I'm there sure, are always bigger ways to fail. <laughs> I guess I guess that's good. I guess that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, and and like Catherine Tanner is there's a special place in my heart for Catherine Tanner because I I also I like her work, but like you know Catherine Tanner was Rick Elgendi's uh, PhD advisor, and so Rick Elgendi has told funny Catherine Tanner stories that are only funny because of the way Rick. Um, delivers them <laughs> like like if if i hope dr tanner please do not listen do not come on the podcast never, we're not ready never. we're not ready for it but like there was one uh every t- in in classes with rick rick's gonna listen to this because he still listens to it and he's gonna he's also gonna cringe but there's a in class the first time we read christ the key in class with rick um one of the things Rick O'Kinney does, listeners, is that whenever there's a new uh, thinker that we're working with, he takes like six or seven minutes and kind of offers like a like a little biography about them, puts a picture up on on the screen, and great powerpoints. Like, yeah, great powerpoints. It's pretty good. Um, and so, like, he puts up a picture of Catherine Tanner, and Catherine Tanner is a very severe person. Like, like she gives the air, the aura of, you know, do not fuck with me, you know? And, mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's very cool, but she always wears like black, mm-hmm. you know, it's these very dark colors and stuff. And, and uh, you know, Rico Gendy's like Catherine Tanner, my PhD advisor, the only person that will be reading to that in this class, whose cell phone number I have in my cell phone. <laughs> Uh, and then he goes, he, he's, we're quiet for a little while as we're, we're sort of writing some things down that are on the screen and we're kind of looking at her picture and she, and he goes, (laughs) he goes, you know, one time, uh, Dr. Tanner came into class and she was wearing purple and not black. (laughs) And somebody said, Dr. Tanner, you're wearing purple today. Dr. Tanner said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's yes. kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> Did I tell you? Maybe I've told the story in the podcast before. Um, my first real physics major class at Carolina was with Sean Washburn. Sean, if you're listening. Thank you. Um, but so he had, he always wore the same outfit. We had Tuesday, Thursday classes and he had like the same rotation of shirts that he would wear. And so he was always wearing cargo shorts and like sandals and then a long sleeve blood donation or platelets donation t-shirt. Um, like one of them has like little stick figures where like one of the stick figures gets into a car accident and the other stick figure is like giving platelets to help the other. It's a lot. Anyway, um, and there's one day in the second semester of mechanics where we're like, we're in the middle of, gosh, I can't even think of what, but it involved like eigenfunctions. And I have no notes from that day because he wore a brown long sleeve shirt with a martini glass on it. And it was mm. not part of the regular rotation. And I didn't know what was going on. And so my notes from that day are just like doodles of martini glasses. Cause I'm like, what is even happening? <laughs> and then after I graduated, I was so intimidated by Washburn. Uh, Cause I am, I was not prepared for how bad I am at physics mm. um, and like the work that needed to go into it. And that's when I dropped from a BS to a BA because I was like, I would rather enjoy my college experience than get a BS, um, which, you know, it was a choice that I made and I'm going to stick by it. Uh, but I would go every, every Thursday night, I would pull an all nighter working on my differential equations homework and my, um, and my mechanics homework and my modern physics homework. And I would show up at Washburn's office on Friday morning and be like, I don't understand any of this. Uh, and he would like walk me through a couple of the pro problems again. And I would go fix all of my answers and turn my homework in. Anyway, I got the degree. But that's, that's my, what matters. Yeah. In my last month in Chapel Hill before I moved to Scotland, well, before I quit my job and went on road trips and then moved to Scotland, um, I'd give him platelets. I used to give platelets all the time because you just get to hang out and feel good for a couple of hours because you're helping save a life. Um, but you're stuck there. Like I usually give triples, which takes me like an hour and a half. Um, and you're just like taped into this chair for an hour and a half. Like you can't go anywhere. And who walks in but Sean Washburn to give platelets in the chair beside me. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, please don't recognize me. Please don't know who I am. I'm just going to stare at my book and this is going to be fine. And it was just a whole lot. And then I hear him like talking with the platelets donation ladies in the center and just like, they're like, oh, Sean, how's your son? How are things going? Turns out his son is a, is a pastor. And so they have a nice little conversation about that. And I'm just like, what in the world is happening? So yeah, sometimes deeply severe people who have very established routines also have like real lives and you just have to catch them outside of their environment. Too scary. Yeah, it's a that, lot. That, that being said, I long to be a person like that. You <laughs> know, course. like that strikes fear into people. <laughs> and, then, and then like, you know, they catch me outside and, and, I, and, and everybody's like, what's he doing? Doesn't he live in his office? <laughs> He has it to does recharge. seem the safest, you know. It is the safest. I agree. That, that's what I want. I want that. Oh, Lord. So, Joe, what's going on with you? 
I just That's had therapy a, this morning. What a question. <laughs> I know so much. Um, my therapist called on Monday and she had some, some something come up. And so I had to reschedule for this morning. Uh, sorry, therapy again, but I'm in a much less fragile place than I was. Um, I went to go visit a friend of mine and we like kayaked and hung out and talk about politics and talked about church stuff. And she's, she is pregnant and is going to have a baby. So uh, we talked about all the, the fun pregnancy things too. And, you know, watch true crime documentaries, all the, all that good stuff. Um, and that was partway. That was, I think Thursday through Saturday. Um, and then just kind of had a, I had a, what felt like a really restorative week this past week hmm. where, um, that like I had a lot, I always have a lot of stuff on my plate and it's really beneficial for me to acknowledge that maybe I have too many things and, and should shift some of the things. But even when I feel like I'm doing nothing, I'm actually doing a lot. I just don't see the, necessarily see the fruits of it or take any of it seriously. Um, but so yesterday I had like coming off of that week of just kind of like things settling into place in a way. Um, I had just this really super productive day yesterday where I like mowed the lawn and finished a grant application and did my laundry and uh, planned out worship for the next two weeks and I uh, just accomplished all sorts of different things. Wrote a blog post for the first time since like May, you know, just did a lot of stuff. Um, and what struck me about it is that like all of those things were continuations of things that I had already kind of started. Mm -hmm. So um, like mowing the lawn was a multi-day endeavor because it, it had been a minute and a lawnmower kept on stalling out because there was so much grass, but also it started to rain on me. But so that meant that like the lawnmower was already out. I already had like, all of the, like my work clothes were, the, the drawer for my work clothes was already open, you know, like just like the, it was already in progress. And it was the same thing with the grant. It was the same thing with a lot of the other stuff that I got done yesterday was like, I felt like, like, oh, this is just an easy, the activation energy has already been spent to start these things. And the activation energy is often what I feel that I don't have. Um, and then I was just able to like, oh, I can just like check these things off and feel like I'm having a great day. So yeah, that's where I'm kind of at this week is that like, um, things feel a lot more manageable this week than they did last week or the week before or the week before. Well, good. Um, yeah. And part of that is like the lie of time management, you know, <laughs> where, yeah. um, you're like, I'm going to do this so that then I can do this. And it's, it's not that you are um, accomplishing more or less. It's that like everything feels more accomplishable. So it's the dumb, like break it down into little steps and do each of the little steps. And it's frustrating that that type of stuff works, but it does. So <laughs> <laughs> sure. I just, I hate those things where you're tricking yourself into being more productive and you're like, no, I should just be able to do this. But the fact of the matter is that like, we need those tricks. That's just what it is. And they're not really tricks. They're just like a method of doing things that is more effective. Yeah. Um, well, everything is the trick or you can look at it that way. That's true. There's no such thing as methods. It's all deception. <laughs> it is. Well, and that's the other thing. So I've been feeling, um, 
a lot more in control of um, my world as much as I can because I have, we had a, um, a training on Saturday that was a, a security training for people in my group that is trying to relocate the statue. Um, and because we've gotten all sorts of threats because we've had suspicious drive ups, all that kind of stuff. And so we're like, well, we really need to start, like, we need to get a handle on our security, whether or not, um, that's gonna, that's not, nothing's gonna stop somebody who is gonna like come to our house with a gun. Cause there's just not anything you can do about that. But there are sure. a lot of things short of that, that you can discourage people from, uh, from like, if they, if they don't really have the courage up, they can see that you have a security camera and change their mind. Or if the worst does happen, you have a security camera, you have footage and that that person can be removed from, from public society until they figure out how to not do things like that. Um, and like as morbid as that is, it was really helpful for me for kind of, um, resetting the panic button in my head uh, because it, it gave me some sense of agency over a lot of things. Because a right. big thing um, when you're thinking about security is um, how you like, how you prepare is how you will act. Like how you rehearse is, is what will actually happen in the sure. moment. And so like, um, the people with anxious minds, I think, run through all of like the worst possible scenarios and then go into like a, a spiral uh, sometimes. But that running through the worst possible scenarios is actually really helpful because then you can, if you are in uh, in good enough mental health or if you have the the time set apart to really work through the scenarios, um, you get to go through it and be like, okay, what's the worst thing that happens? Somebody comes to my house with a gun. What do I do? And even just having like a plan for all of these things is helpful because like now I know, I know what I can do in terms of defending myself. I have people who are ready in case something happens to, I don't feel abandoned in a way that I had felt before. Um, and then if I can do that with home security, then I can do that with like the presidential election. What happens if the worst happens? Like oh. what happens if America turns into a failed state and what will I do? <laughs> and all of these kind of things that like, it seems prepper, like a prepper or a person who's wearing a tinfoil hat, like it seems insane to do this. But if you can just sit and reason and be like, okay, in this scenario, who do I want to choose to be? And how can I prepare to be that person? It just makes you feel more in charge of things, whether or not you actually are. Well, you're not because the world is going to be what it's going to be. But regardless of what the world is going to be, you know who you're going to be. And that has been really powerful for me over the past week. So That's good. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I like and I think that applies to church work, too. Like, um one thing that makes a lot of pastors afraid is like, what if this church closes or what if there is just a huge conflict or, or what if I get fired? You know, like all of those kind of disaster scenarios. Right. Um, and it's interesting that our disaster scenarios are the church closing rather than the church not spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> or just are. like later in this episode. Um, 
but yeah, like if you think through like, what is the worst that's going to happen if my church closes and how are we going to care for people if my church closes? Um, and what, uh, what's the worst that's going to happen if people choose to leave? Um, and how am I going to, to deal with the fallout of people leaving? Um, yeah, it's just been, I preached this Sunday on, um, the end of Matthew seven. So the very end of the sermon on the Mount where Jesus does the, like, uh, those who act on my words are like those who built a house on a, on stone. Um, yes. yeah. And I, I have been in a, so many, I've either been in or been like the, the youth helper on so many musicals that like use different parables and have like songs about the, like building your house on rock. And it's always, whenever we do that, it's not, the house built on rock is not uh, doing Jesus's words. It's hearing Jesus's words. Like it is the exact opposite of what Jesus means when he says that. Right, right. And I'm like, I was reading it this time and I'm like, how have I missed this every single other time? Uh, But so, yeah, so, um, so it was, that was actually really helpful for me this week in, um, realizing that uh, if a, if a church falls apart in these times, it is because that church was not built on a solid foundation um, it, or like that the solid foundation has eroded over the years. Um, and that like uh, most clergy right now are inheriting churches that do not have the firmest of foundations in terms of, of spiritual knowledge, discipleship, and following Jesus. Um, because if they did, they wouldn't be so popular, you know? If we were all really, truly following the Sermon on the Mount, if we were all really dedicating ourselves to being followers of Jesus, then we would be more disruptive and we would be, we would be providing a witness that would make other people feel uncomfortable. Um, mm. And yeah. like, there, and I, just don't, I really don't think there's any way around that anymore. Um, sure, sure. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, Can I nuance that? I don't yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, I think I agree with you. I think that on the other side to that uh, and, uh, is um, it, I, think, I think it matters who it becomes popular with. Mm-hmm. Can I put it that way? So like, yes, I agree. I think that there is a sense in which churches, you know, when a church is really empowered by the spirit and when the church uh, really attempts to become the body of Christ on earth, um, it, there is an, it afflicts things, right? Like, uh, I forget who the first seminary professor was that said this to, to me. You know, I'll never remember. It could easily be Sandra, but it, but it might not have been. Um, uh, when the word of God comes to a town, meaning Jesus, it uh, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, like we say that a lot. And, and so like there is a sense in which if the church is a body of Christ and becomes Christ's body, you know, on earth, that, that it does that, right? I, I think that we throw around, uh, you know, and, and I've said this too, and I don't think it's wrong. We throw around things like, well, the church, 
you know, it, one of the clear signs that a church is not doing the right thing is how popular it is. And I think that that's fair, but I think that what we really mean is that we are just so, what, what I think that betrays is that we're just so used to seeing um, afflicted people not be welcomed by the church that, you know, we, we don't even associate that, that with church, right? Right. Like, like, and there's a sense in which, like, like, I think, I, I think there is something, you know, inherently beautiful and desirable about the body of Jesus Christ, you know, and wanting to be with and in the body of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it matters uh, what kind of people are attracted to that church attracted in, in, and I don't mean that in like that consumeristic way, but like attracted in the, wow, that's look at this, you know, this mm -hmm. is, this is it. Like this is, this is, this is a real thing. Um, what is Al, Alan Hirsch? I've talked about Alan Hirsch on this podcast before. Alan Hirsch is a, is a missional church guy. He, he's, he's a guy I actually quite like. And one of the things he always reminds us is that, Really, at any given moment, you know, the church shares about 40% of the population of the United States, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that number is going down. But, but, like, but, it, but we're always just sort of sharing the same group of people, you know, you, you've got the, the, the churches don't really grow necessarily. They, they have a better mousetrap and they, and they trap the, the, the people who are already going to church. To, to their church. That's what happens most times. And, mm -hmm. and Alan Hirsch wants to say, well, what, what, what the church really should be thinking about is what it would mean to be the kind of place that um, is for people who are not interested in the church. Mm -hmm. You know, who people who have always been on the outside of what the established church thinks is important and, and is doing. And I, I, and so, yeah, like, like, I think that there are, I think that there are people in every community who, who um, need both materially and spiritually the church to be disruptors. Mm -hmm. And, and if the church were to do that, that would be the church, that would be the way and maybe one of the ways in which they're, comforted right you know uh, um, afflicted people receive comfort when when the church disrupts what what is afflicting them you know in, in a really important way yeah yeah i i think that's really true um and that's why like with the group of us that are trying to take down the statue um why that feels so much more like what church should be <laughs> than what sure. what my churches are is that we're made of people who are um in those kind of outside groups right we've got a lot of lgbtq people we've got um uh people black and brown people who are involved in the group we've got people who are like constantly working with those who are marginalized um yeah, like we just, we don't have a ton of very comfortable people. And the comfortable people that we do have are some of the ones who are giving the absolute most. Like sure. the, um, the, the.
nope, gotta take that back. The the recent project that we did, the recent big outreach project we did had to be The mercenaries we purchased. I mean <laughs> I mean the the violent uh, no. volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> No, we did not purchase mercenaries. We're not bussing in Antifa. Um, <laughs> I heard I heard that Antifa from Charlotte are coming up. Oh my god. But like we have got anyway, it's any it's it's but banana. We have Antifa here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? We're we're all kind of anti-fascists in this group. Uh, but yeah, no, we did a big project that required a lot of upfront funding. And one of the people in the group was like, yeah, we can, we can swing paying $900 for this and like, we can crowdfund to pay us back, but like, don't worry about it. And that it's just really powerful to see people like actually living into their beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and that's part of uh like my current, uh, my eternal struggle, well, not eternal, my recent struggle, <laughs> because I've been very we're comfortable. So we're so dramatic. <laughs> my, my eternal conflict. <laughs> the source of my eggs. <laughs> or am um, I an old one? Am I a god? <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, so I remember I grew up in like, as a a church that I would qualify now as like a pretty mid-level, relatively wealthy suburban church. And I just, my family benefited from the wealth that my church had, but like that was a very comfortable space. And like, <laughs> yeah, there was some stuff that, that reached out to those on the margins, but not really. I mean, it was just your typical kind of nineties, early two thousands, comfortable church. Um, and I miss that sometimes. Like I miss oh, sure. being able to just like walk into the choir room and have this be a place that I can just exist and feel safe and be involved in fun trips that I get to travel. You know, like it's nice. Yeah. Um, at the same time, like, so I have that kind of longing for that, that nostalgia, I guess is what it is. But at the same time, like the spirit moved within that and I was shaped and formed within that but not in the in the kind of huge way that I that I could have been shaped or that like the gospel of Jesus Christ if it was allowed to work fully within my life and community would have shaped me and so I've done a lot of uh, I've done a lot of realizing in the past couple of years that there that the church can be so much more than just that um, and that I want, I want something different than what I grew up with. And so that's my current struggle right now with the church is that like the United Methodist Church is always going to say good things through like the commission on religion and race or through like the board of church and society, but the mm -hmm. church itself and, and the churches that are part of the denomination are always going to struggle with actually living that out. And and that's, that's hard to every single Sunday show up and try to lead people into somewhere new and then be told over and over again that like, no, you can't do this, or you really need to come alongside people, or like, I just get a lot of messages of like, don't be bold. Uh, it's it, the, the wisest thing is to go slowly and, and make right, small right. changes. And I, that is such a big uh, conflict within me right now and it makes me so tired <laughs> yeah yeah i know exactly what you mean um uh, uh i'm gonna quote alan hirsch again and i apologize uh i shouldn't apologize he's just this he's just this australian guy that sounds like korg from thor ragnarok 
Yes. <laughs> it's pretty great. Oh, I'm Cork. This here is Meek. My name's Alan Hirsch. <laughs> Alan Hirsch here. No, right. Um, but uh, he, he says in his book, um, what you win them with, you win them to. Mm. Uh, meaning that, like, if you uh, get people to be a part of your church because of your really great programming, and and you know the the kind of benefits you offer or the the um, comfortable comfortable space or stuff like that that that's really what you win them to you know yeah you might you you might get them in the door that way but but that's that then sort of becomes if you will the the whole the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that, that, that it's not a hard thing. Like I, like, like, I don't think that that's a hard rule. I think that's a soft rule. And it's more so like, I think that there's room for that to be to change and to, to be transformed that people can come in to a, a to a church for one reason and stay for another reason. Um, but I think that there's some real truth to that. Uh, and I, so I say all of that because, like, I think that there is space for for a church to be wealthy, for uh, uh, faithfully. That's going to sound weird, but like, but because I think it matters how um, a church then orients its wealth. Like, mm. like you just you just said that in in your experience with your Antifa terrorist cell, right? Like, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are, there are wealthy people who are giving very much, you know, like, like, and, and, and people who are well off that are, that are fully committed to, to the work that you guys are doing. And, and because of their means are able to be committed in a particular way. And I think, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's bad. I, I, I really don't. I, I think that um, that is a good thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. good to uh, have a relationship with your wealth that is one that says, whew, there are so many more important things in this. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. like, like that's the correct way of doing it. I think I, I, I don't, I, I might have a lot of Marxist tendencies, but like, being a Christian, being a Marxist are not the same thing. Right. You know, like, like there are, there are real legitimate ways to be faithfully Christian without advocating for um, a kind of, without advocating for the rise of the proletariat and the, and the, the bloody revolution. You know, you can be a Christian and not believe that the streets will run red with bourgeois blood. You know what I right. mean? Like, like that's okay. Like I might have that in me. I might have the well. Maybe we should break out the guillotine, you know. But like, <laughs> like, like I might, I might have that a little bit just to keep people on their toes, you know. If 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 uh, if Jeff Bezos thought that he really could get guillotine, he'd probably pay more taxes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but like, I would be kind of. It would be kind of silly for me to to not look at. Um, we'll just use a really personal example. Let's not look at like my congregants who who gave Beth and Andrea and I that money. 
right? Like like after we got scammed by the moving company. Right. Um, I am not the only people. We we are not the only people that that family has been generous to. And 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 their generosity is is fueled by their love of Jesus Christ. I know that. Mm-hmm. I guess I could get mad <laughs> that they <laughs> that they don't think that that uh, we need to fundamentally shift the economic system of this country. I guess I could get angry about that. And and there's a part of me that I suppose is frustrated by that, but like. I would also be a fool if I didn't see that that it's precisely the figure of poor man Jesus Christ that prompts that family to be generous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like like it's like it's their devotion to Jesus that prompts that. Um not not out of fear of retribution or out of fear of, you know, or out of obligation, like, but, but really simply just like, uh, this is what she said to me, pastor, I thought we all need help. You know, (laughs) I thought Mm -hmm. I pastor, I thought, I thought that Jesus was needed help sometimes. And, and so that should be good enough for the rest of us, you know, (laughs) like, like that's why we all need help. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. So I'm being yeah. generous. I, I'm I'm being uncharacteristically generous of my of the capitalist pigs. I know, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> right, but, but like that's the um maybe that is the what's at the heart of the story of the rich young man, where like Jesus is like, okay, like you you say you've done all the things, like here's your test, go sell everything and and do it, and maybe it's not that we. I mean, Jesus just call us to give everything and sell everything and give our money to the poor. But I think you can also say in a heartbeat, if I was called upon to give away all of my wealth, I would. Um, But because I'm here, like the church has to have a sustainable, the body of Christ has to be sustained in some way uh, that like I am here to give generously in and that like if my if all of my wealth were called for me today i would trust in god that that there would still be something for me tomorrow but while i have it let me use it in a way that that actually reflects my beliefs yeah. and yeah i mean i think that's a that's a good landing place for it um yeah. but <laughs> i just like I, and I, I will one day, I, we worked on this a little bit in therapy this morning, but I will one day have to like, just get past my anger and resentment at um, previous leaders in the church in the United States uh, for really fucking us over and making it hard to find Jesus in the church. Uh, but I'm not quite there yet. So I'm just, uh, it will still rage, but one day there will come a day where I move past that anger and resentment and just accept this is what we have and go forward. So... Well, and I think that your therapist is probably right, but we're not going to let that gloomy fact uh, persuade <laughs> us to, you know, yeah, she's right, but that, you know, so who cares? Yeah. Well, I'm uh, not, the other side of this is that um, the only emotion that was allowed to me for so long was happiness and joy and like faithfulness. Like the the church that I grew up with 
which was really like most of the moral teaching that I got in my life. I love my parents, but they really kind of let other people take the lead on that. Um, and so like the only really allowable thing that I could feel was happy and this is fine and God's going to get me through this. And uh, no, I have, I have decades of other feelings that demand to be felt and like when i'm done feeling those things then i'll be uh i'll, I'll do that resolving but like right now i deserve to be angry like they fucked sure. us over no i agree that should be the mini so by the way because we should do a mini very soon on on not only uh eric metatax part two electric boogaloo <laughs> but uh but also what's happening in my conference because it is delicious. All right. Uh, well, let's, let's do that. Yeah. All right. Uh, should I sign a song? Yeah, go for it. Friends, this has been another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.